Aloha from Maui, and welcome to this week's Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. My name is Michael Benner, and uh, happy, as always, to be with you. This is, in fact, one of my favorite things to do. It's uh, a lot like radio, which I've done all my life. We even have the opportunity to take phone calls, and we'll do that a little later in the show. And uh, also, text comments. So the other aspect of this that I think is far superior to radio is that we can be heard all over the world. And every once in a while, though our main base is the western U.S. and southwestern U.S., we get calls from uh, uh, Europe and, uh, well, I think the record is probably Bangkok. We got a call one day from Thailand. And um, I know we have listeners in uh, throughout Asia and and uh, most people are listening to the podcast, however, they listen on demand. So if you're ever able to be here live, we'd love to have you live. And if not, pick up the podcast at the iTunes store or any of the major podcast directories on the Internet. Today's topic is happiness for no reason. And I'd like to address, obviously, the fact that most people believe they need reasons to be happy. And they make efforts to create reasons. Uh, could be a situation or circumstance, an event, um, a relationship, um, a job promotion, more money, you know, some sort of reason to be happy. And then that reason to be happy may or may not make you happy, seemingly, but it fades if your happiness is based on a circumstance or an event then that's going to fade and the happiness will fade with it and you'll need to continue to come up with new breakthroughs new reasons to be happy as if there were no way for you to just be happy for no reason so today we're going to challenge that and say hey you can be happy for no reason uh, you don't need a reason to be happy and that you can learn to maintain that level of awareness not that you'll never be knocked out of it you know there will be those periods where you'll be sad or or lonely, or, or depressed, or just confused, stressed out. But it's a whole lot easier if you see happiness as the norm to restore that. If you think of happiness as your base, right? That's your baseline, is that you're basically happy for no reason most all of the time. Then if you do get knocked for a loop, something happens in your life that is sad or depressing or confusing, it's easier to move through it, to process it, to come to understand it and return quickly and I'd say even elegantly to that state of happiness. Happiness for no reason is more than an emotion. Happiness is more than a feeling. Happiness is a state of contentment, uh, satisfaction, uh, fulfillment, I would say, that 
again, can be a natural and normal condition. You can be happy for no reason by being conscious, by being awake, by being aware and alert. Um, And, of course, the best way that anyone knows of to promote this expanded level of awakeness to be more aware, more conscious, and therefore happier for no reason is through mindfulness and meditation. I think there's really three aspects to it. There's the study of the practice of mindfulness, but there is also the meditation process and then mindfulness itself, which is in a sense, maintaining the awake state that we can develop or enter into in in a meditation to allow that to carry over into the waking state after your meditation has ended. When you're up and about walking around in your life and encountering other people and, and being stimulated every which way, left, right, up and down, with good things and bad things, and yes, happy things and sad things, and yet you can even be happy if you're awake, if your consciousness is being developed mindfully, then um, you can be happy about the fact that you're able to experience momentary sadness. Uh, Sadness is not such a bad thing, um, It gives us an opportunity for compassion, for example. Even anger can give us an opportunity to learn to be more compassionate and um, empathetic and understanding. That brings us back to our natural state of happiness. So happiness is where you're supposed to be virtually all the time, and you don't need a reason to be happy. Okay. Now, Let's talk a little bit about the differences between thoughts and feelings. Because this is really the linchpin for this uh, premise or this proposal, this proposition that I'm putting out there for you today. It's really based around understanding the differences, the major important differences between thinking and feeling. Excuse me a sec while I have a little little morning coffee here. Used to call it Morning Joe, but with Joe Scarborough on MSNBC calling himself Morning Joe, I feel like he can't use the term anymore. Thoughts and feelings interact with behavior. And speech, some people might say, well, you got to throw that in there. Speech is a type of behavior. So the lower correspondence, I'll say, of the divine trinity in the wisdom traditions is inherent in human beings as their mental, emotional, and physical state. The father aspect is divine will. That corresponds to your willpower, your intention, your mind, your mentality, your thoughts. The son 
the Christ or Christos in the uh, Christian Trinity um, is corresponding to the emotional nature. It's divine love in in the uh, highest Trinity, but it corresponds to emotional love and also the absence of emotional love or even the absence of happiness when we get into the negative feelings. And then the uh, Holy Spirit or the mother aspect of divinity, which is the material world and intelligence working itself out in separated form, this corresponds to the physical body. Um, Every Sunday, in fact, many days during the week, uh, hundreds of millions of Catholics make the sign of the cross without even realizing what they're saying. Um, by or what they're doing by touching their forehead in the name of the Father. Uh, divine will, your little will is a correspondence to divine will, touching the heart and making the sign of the cross. The Catholic says, and of the Son, in the name of the Son, you touch your emotional nature, which corresponds to divine love or perfect love. And the Holy Spirit or the mother aspect, Father, Son, Mother, it really should be. Um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit or Mother aspect is the physicalness, Mother Earth, the universe, and the shoulders represent the physical body. So think of the lower correspondence of that divine trinity as the mental, emotional, and physical natures. And in that order, there's a reason for that order. So the mental nature is your thoughts, your emotional nature, of course, your feelings, your emotional feelings, and your physical nature is your behavior, the action you take, and that includes your speech and your health, okay, aging and such. Now, you can think of this trinity as a triangle, and mysticism and the ageless wisdom the various mystery schools and um, that stand within and really above all religious traditions, the um, Kabbalists in the uh, Hebrew religion, the Jewish religion, the um, Christian mystics, Rosicrucians and, and um, uh, theosophists and such. In um, Islam, of course, the Sufis are the mystics. And Eastern philosophy, by its very nature, tends to be rather mystical. Um, Buddhism, which is a, and Taoism, which are really both spin-offs of, of Hinduism and a variety of other religions, are essentially mystical in nature. And what that means is they're centered around a personal experience of channeling or coming in contact with uh, having a communion, a union, uh, a yoga. Yoga means union. Uh, an ascension uh, toward that divinity again, as if ripped from the oneness of things. We find ourselves in separated form. And then the idea is through thought, feeling, and behavior, we can work our way back home again. Well, 
What is the relationship then of these three? When I say think of it as a triangle, your thoughts, your feelings, and your behavior, I'm suggesting that if you change any one of the three, the other two will be affected. Uh, you can say, um, well, I changed my mind. I used to do it differently, but then I thought about it and I changed my mind. Well, does that impact the way you feel about it? Of course. And did that change your behavior? Most likely. Right. Or people will say, well, I just, uh, you know, behavior modification. I just want cold turkey and quit those cigarettes or I stopped eating meat or whatever the deal was. And, uh, well, you might ask, did that sudden abrupt change in behavior change your mind? Yeah, I began to think differently. And, well, weren't you thinking differently before? Well, yeah. So which is the cause and which is the effect? not always easy to say and of course there's the emotional nature in the middle now people will say they change their behavior and they change their mind it's rare you hear somebody say well I changed the way I felt about it I changed my feelings but someone who is mindful who is conscious who is awake and aware and working on personal and spiritual growth will tell you that through the emotional nature that we can manage ourselves by managing our emotional feelings, particularly the fear and anxiety and stress that underlies all negative feeling. And um, so if we change the way we feel, that will have an impact on the way we think and behave. Change any one of the three corners of the triangle or any one of the three legs of the triangle, and the other two are going to be affected. Nevertheless, there is an order. And most people get the order mixed up. For most people, the order is, and this is often called emotional polarization in um, the wisdom traditions, in theosophy in particular, Emotional polarization means you do what you do because of the way you feel. You lead with an emotion. Now, there's going to be a back and a forth in, in everybody's head and heart where, as I've already said, like the triangle, if we factor in behavior as well, we can see change any one, the other two are affected. Let's just put the behavior aside for a moment as if we've delayed the behavior, the action, the speech, until we've had time to work through our thoughts and feelings. Is this a matter of the head or the heart? And back and forth we go, and everything that we think impacts our emotional nature. And every feeling that we feel on this topic has an impact on our thoughts. And then the back and forth of thought and feeling and feeling and thought and Thought, feeling, feeling, thought, thought, feeling, feeling, thought, 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 feeling, feeling, thought, feeling, you know, <laughs> spinning around and around. We often do what we do, not because it came from a well-reasoned, even-tempered place, but because we don't know how to manage our thoughts and our feelings. We don't know how to wake up 
most of us, and develop this state of consciousness, this awareness or this awakeness, we end up reacting almost reflexively much of the time out of the emotional nature, regardless of the thought. And this creates behavior that we often regret or, you know, resent. We'll we'll say things that we can't believe came out of our mouths. We'll do things that minutes later we regret, like, oh, my God, what was I thinking? Why did I say that? Why did I do that? And the answer is because I felt like it. And you'll even, you'll even hear people say that in defense. You say, well, why'd you do that? Why'd you think that was a good idea? And they won't answer you in terms of thinking it was a good idea. They'll say, well, I felt like it. I did. You mean you did it because you felt like it? Yeah, and they're often very defensive. Because I felt like it. You want to make something out of it, right? And so the order then in most people, most of the time, is... This emotionally polarized, the emotion leads to the behavior, and the thought is really after the fact. The the thoughts are afterthoughts. The thoughts are second thoughts. You know that phrase? Wait a minute, on second thought. But again, it's often too late. You've often already blurted out the regrettable statement or taken the ridiculous action that you now wish you know you hadn't taken so the 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 mentality falls to the third position and this process of then using the mind to come up with a rationale after the behavior for why you did it that's called rationalizing All right. and i'm not sure who i think it may have been mark twain that human beings are less rational creatures than they are rationalizing creatures. In other words, we start with a pre-existing emotional set. We behave and speak based on that emotional set. And then when things don't work out, we reverse engineer it and come up with a lot of phony rationalizations for why we really intended for it to happen that way. <laughs> Children do this, but adults do it, you know, uh, as well. I, I'm getting an image now. I don't know if you ever saw the movie of Pee Wee Herman, that character Pee Wee Herman, and he's riding his bicycle as if he's, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old, and he falls off his bicycle, <laughs> showing off in front of a group of girls. And he just jumps up real fast and grabs a bicycle and says, I meant to do that. That, you know, that's rationalizing. That's rationalization. And you have to consider that unless we really are developing ourselves, the group listening to a program like this can be an exceptional group. But the vast majority of our friends and neighbors and many of us much of the time especially when we're overstimulated and stressed and, and wound up, we'll begin to behave in these emotionally polarized ways. All right.
what we really want to learn to do instead is become mentally polarized so that out of the initial back and forth of a thought generating a feeling and a feeling generating a thought, and then it goes back and forth like ping pong or tennis, right? Thought, feeling, thought, feeling, thought, feeling, thought, 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 feeling, feeling, thought, feeling, back and forth and back and forth. And finally... Ideally, if we're mentally polarized instead of emotionally polarized, it is the clear thought as an energy, as a seed that is going to manifest and grow into a reality that then impacts the emotional nature and picks up a force. Now the energy has a force Right now, amperage has a voltage or a push behind it, an EMF, right? Electromagnetic force. That's the emotion. That's the drive. That's the push. That's the pressure behind the mental idea. And then thirdly, that energy with a force behind it, that thought with a strong feeling, creates the appropriate behavior uh, usually a much better behavior that is well-reasoned, right? And it comes from an even-tempered place. When we see our friends and neighbors or find ourselves acting with emotional polarization because it felt like it, they're usually acting out of an unresolved negative emotion, some sort of hurt, some sort of anger, uh, and so there's a reaction that takes place. And it's not well thought out. But to catch yourself and to breathe and relax and to reorient yourself. So there's still the back and forth of emotions leading to thoughts and vice versa. And around and around it goes. Still, before you take action, you come to a place where it's the well-reasoned thought that becomes the chairman of the three and says, all right, feeling, let's get on board with this. Let's get excited. Let's get positive. Right? And then take the behavior or speak the words that you intended to speak. There won't be any rationalization, none needed, none necessary, because you did it up front. And so to be mentally polarized is far superior in most cases to being emotionally polarized. I would say the only exception would be in immediate danger. If you're ever in immediate danger, then fight or flight will take over and you will just react without thought. That's a nice shortcut that we've inherited from our ancestors, all of whom had to survive danger. Uh, to create a world that is much less dangerous than it's ever been before. I know those of you who watch television and uh, too much TV news um, probably are under the impression from time to time that this is a very violent world, um, and it is. Um, most of the violence comes in the form of just hunger and um, lack of clean water and 
decent housing and um, the gross injustices that humanity somehow manages uh, to tolerate. But uh, the, it's a wide-ranging problem. And uh, you're going to have to resist getting off on, uh, on a tangent or a sidetrack there and just stay with the idea of the best way to solve any and all problems unless we're in immediate danger, in which case fight or flight will handle it, right? You'll either fight or run. It's actually fight or flight or freeze, deer in the headlights, or faint. You'll do one of those four, fight or flight, freeze or faint. And um, you don't have to even worry about this process we're talking about here. But if you're able to get conscious, you're better off being conscious and when the danger is not real but seems real because you're distressed and overstimulated, it's important to breathe, to relax, to become mindful, to go into that state of expanded awareness where you can think clearly and then choose positive feeling as a force to reinforce and drive the energy of the thought into a physical action. Okay? That model, that paradigm, is the first part of what I want to tell you today. That's a very, very, very important construct. And if you ever find yourself in a position of defending an irrational behavior by rationalizing attempting to rationalize after the fact, well, I really meant to do this unconscious thing, <laughs> you know, or I did it because I felt like it, you know, and you get defensive. Uh, hold on, that's not a good enough reason. In fact, I felt like it is not a reason at all. And that's the bearing that this has on our topic of the day today, is that thoughts, our reasoning, that's part of a reasoning process. To think is to reason, to be rational, uh, to, be, to, be, to cogitate, <laughs> uh, to be cognitively aware, cerebral, was maybe another way of saying it. Okay. Uh, what was it? Uh, wasn't uh, uh, not Rousseau, Descartes, Descartes, for some reason I was thinking Rousseau. It was Descartes that said, I think, therefore I am. He suggested that his very existence, the great existential question of who am I, could be discerned by thought or at least by your awareness of yourself as having the ability to think, to reason, to be rational, to be logical. And most logic, most rational thinking is by its very nature deductive. It's important to understand how limited deductive thought is because it's about the only kind of thinking we use. And deductive thought, look at the word, to deduce is to subtract. 
deductive logic, reasoning, what people ask for when they say, now think this through carefully, be rational, be reasonable. What they want you to do is start with a large overarching premise and begin to deduce or subtract and break things down into smaller and smaller pieces, moving general to specific. This is how we balance a checkbook. You have a certain amount on deposit. You wrote, let's say, three checks. You subtract those three checks. You deduce them. And you have logically, deductively, rationally arrived at a new balance. Now, there is such a thing as inductive logic, but it's rarely understood, and it's difficult to use properly. Um, I almost hesitate to even bring it up, but it's relevant to the topic today. Um, Inductive logic, the classic example is if every crow I've ever seen is black, then all crows must be black. What's the, what's the fatal flaw in that kind of reasoning? See, whether it's statistically significant, the amount of crows you've seen, or whether it's anecdotal, that's the risk you run with inductive logic, moving specific to general. Because if your experience of watching crows is anecdotal, yeah, I guess I've seen a few dozen crows in my life. Well, that might be a pretty risky form of inductive logic to extrapolate out to, therefore, all crows must be black. You see? But if it's a statistically significant sampling of all crows, you've seen hundreds of thousands of crows and you've studied the literature of those who have done similar investigations, and nobody seems to be able to find a crow that isn't black. Nobody's ever found a crow with spots or a white flash on its breastbone or, or an albino crow. Maybe <laughs> there is an albino crow, but I've never heard of one. And uh, Crows, by the way, are very, very smart animals. Another story for another time. We'll talk about crows, maybe. But uh, talking about inductive and deductive logic here, you can see how risky inductive logic can be if your set is small. Um, and, and this comes up a lot. You know, people who have very little experience will argue um, a a point they're trying to make based on mere anecdotal evidence. Well, I knew these three guys that were Irish, and they all had red hair, so it must be that every Irishman has red hair and freckles, you know, because, well, I, I, every Irishman I ever knew did all three of them, right? Um, uneducated people do this a lot. You'll see it in racism, for example, and sexism, and, and all the various isms where people are extrapolating from very small, insignificant sets of information, anecdotal evidence. So anytime you do any kind of inductive logic, specific to general, extrapolating the, the graph, be real careful. Right? 
be working from a statistically significant sample. However, we don't have any of those worries, and the much more common, the much more popular form of reasoning called deductive logic, which is always general to specific. I mentioned um, balancing a checkbook, for example. How about, how about ordering from a restaurant? This surprises people when I, when I use this example because everybody's ordered off a menu and they think they're ordering what they want. The process, however, if you pay attention to it, is a perfect example of deductive logic. The process is you open a menu and scan it quickly and make some basic decisions. First, do I want breakfast, lunch, or dinner? You've just eliminated two-thirds of the menu. You decide you're going to have lunch. You look at the lunch. You begin eliminating what you know you do not want. Right? And <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? See, you thought you were looking for what you wanted to eat. What you're really doing is deducing. You're eliminating there's a great story about Edison uh, inventing the light bulb, and, and somebody said, aren't you frustrated? It, it took you a thousand times. You had a thousand mistakes before you found the right combination of uh, elements to make a light bulb. And all that failure did not bum you out. He said, I never failed. He said, that, that was just a thousand ways of figuring out how not to make a light bulb. Every, in other words, every failure was uh, uh, one step closer to the resolution. That's that's deductive logic. So you've narrowed it down to lunch, and then you start eliminating things. Well, I had a big salad for lunch yesterday, so I'm looking for maybe a sandwich today. Although that pasta is looking sort of good, let me put that on hold over here. I may come back to that. Let's check out uh, the sandwiches. and You narrow it down to two or three items, and then you grab one. That's deductive logic. All right? That's reasoning. That will not bring you happiness. Our theme for the day is happiness for no reason. No amount of reasoning. No amount of figuring things out. No amount of deductive logic is necessary to make you happy. Because happiness is not a thought. Happiness is closer to a feeling than a thought, an emotion. Indeed, most would agree that happiness is a quality of love. If we break all of our feelings into positive and negative, good feelings that we want to continue and bad feelings that we do not want to continue, and then name those two categories, well, the negative feeling is generally fear. People might call it hate. Some, some suggest negative feelings are mostly apathetic, but no, they're fear. They're all fear-based. Everything that hurts you is rooted in fear and something you don't understand about yourself. About yourself. 
And then love would be the positive feelings. So happiness is a quality of love. You might say, well, don't we need a reason to love? Do we? Do we need reasons to feel any feeling? You say, well, there, there is a reason why I feel that way. Are you sure? Or are, just, are, are those just your attempts to figure out what to do with the negative fear-based feelings and how to generate more of the positive love-based feelings or even transmute the fear into love, the negative into the positive? How do you do that? Most people in this 21st century now are still trying to do it with their thinking. They're going to manipulate their feelings with their thoughts. The idea of managing the feeling directly, of having an ability, manage is really the best word for it. I've, I've cast about and looked for a lot of other ways of saying it and when we get into the questions and comments if you got a better idea <laughs> I'd love to hear it because I, sometimes I get tired of using the same word over and over again um, I mean a word like manipulates not right so what am I trying to say here how else could I say it but to 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 be the leader to be the craftsman to be in charge of, uh, to direct, to orchestrate, or to manage your emotions directly. You do not need thoughts. They are often involved. But you can manage your thoughts, even though there will be some affect, some feeling associated with them. They're, they're inseparable thoughts and feelings. Remember my initial statement about the triangle. Touch any one. Thought, feeling, behavior, change any one, the other two will be affected. They're inseparable. You can't have a thought that doesn't have some feeling component, albeit subtle. It, it, it may be huge. And vice versa, you can't have a strong feeling that, doesn't, that isn't influenced by a thought. But just as we can learn to calm our emotional nature, and think more clearly, free from the influence of large, overwhelming feelings, right? we can learn to do the same thing and manage our feelings without a reasoning process. Feelings are a very different quality than thoughts. Both are forms of intelligence. That's another point I really feel strongly about making today. Having said everything that we've said now to this point, you may find this surprising. Note takers, this is something to jot down if you're a note taker. Thoughts are a form of intelligence, this reasoning, this rational, logical thinking, deductive in nature, general to specific, or specific to general, inductive thinking too. Thoughts are a form of objective intelligence 
designed to know the world around you. When you use your thoughts to understand yourself, they're being misapplied. And you'll find yourself being self-critical, self-conscious, and often self-loathing. By the very nature of using thoughts to understand your subjective qualities yourself, when thoughts are an intelligence that is intended to help you discern the world around you. Feelings, on the other hand, emotional feelings, I would argue, are a second form of intelligence that is subjective in nature and designed to tell you about you. Those are unique, incomparable being, authentic and genuine, and that you're unlike any other being. There's nobody to compare you to. That's why thoughts, which is basically a process of judging and comparing, don't work. Because you're incomparable. There's nobody to, in a relative sense, we could say, well, you're sort of like Jane in this way and Sally in that way. And, you know, you remind me of Bill when you talk like that. But, you know, we've got the fingerprint evidence and the DNA proof of our uniqueness. And so, just as thoughts will not help you to understand yourself, we make a similar mistake when we project our emotions onto other people and say, well, he made me feel this way or she made me feel this way. So we obsess on the stimulus, the person who caused or stimulated the feeling, rather than understand that the emotion is evoked from us rather than done to us. So these are two discrete forms of intelligence. To do it properly, you use the mental nature to know everything around you, everything but yourself. And you use the emotional nature to know yourself and stop projecting your emotional intelligence onto other people. All right. So again, happiness for no reason. Happiness is about you. It's a pre-existing, natural, normal state. And you do not need a reason to be happy. You do not need other people to make you happy. You do not need events or circumstances to cause happiness. Right? You can't think your way or reason your way to happiness. That's what most people are doing most of the time, and they're failing. They're not very happy. Now, there's many reasons for this. Psychology is full of this, and spirituality as well. But I'll say it real simply. I think simply. If you understand that the ego is obsessed with three things, with judging, with controlling, and with getting approval, then you can put that aside. You can choose not to do that. And a big part of that is judging what? Mentally judging your feelings. So 
here's where we get all complex and twisted and convoluted. Instead of just accepting our feelings as symptoms, we judge them as good or bad, as right or wrong, as getting better or getting worse. And again, try to reason with our emotional nature. You know, gee, I don't know why I feel this way today. There doesn't seem to be any reason. Well, can't we just practice allowing ourselves to accept that many, I would say most, maybe all, (laughs) certainly most feelings are irrational. They will not succumb to reasoning. Why do you feel that way? I don't know. (laughs) Why are you so angry? Why are you so upset? Why are you so defensive? I don't know. Because the why, in these cases, are emotional in nature, and we've gone to school to develop the mind, not the heart. I, I think... You know, we'd have need for 10 times the number of psychotherapists that we have today if people tomorrow en masse realized, oh my God, I spent my whole life educating my brain and I know nothing about my heart. I've developed my mental intelligence and I'm an infant, a pre-adolescent child. When it comes to emotional intelligence, I don't know how to be happy. I'm going to have to think about it. (laughs) I'm going to have to be reasonable. I have to find a reason to be happy. I have to reason with my sadness. I have to sit the part of me that's not happy down and give it reasons to be happy. If it sounds like that's not going to work, I mean, look at your experience of it. Does it? No. No. If you could just give up the judging. I mean, the control, the search for control, and the search for approval and acceptance are similar issues we'll talk about. We've talked about in the past, and certainly we'll talk about more in the future. Because ego is just obsessed with judging, controlling, and, you know, the Sally Fields, you really like me, you really, really like me. Well, who cares if they really, really like you? If you liked yourself, it wouldn't matter so much whether people really, really like you. You'd let people be who they are, and most of them would like you if you liked yourself. We've got things really turned around in this regard. Again, if you're on the telephone, I want to go to the questions here in just a minute. So if you're on the telephone or going to the phone, the number is on the web page in front of you. And if you hit local listings, you can find an area code near you to call. Uh, most people have flat rate, but if you're still paying for long distance by the minute, find a local number and call it. Enter the conference ID that you see, and it's all voice prompted, and when you're ready to go, if you want to uh, 
give me your comment or your question, just press star 2 on the telephone touchpad, and I'll see that on my board, and I'll be able to unmute you. If you're on the web and prefer to leave a comment or a question on the web, you'll see a text box. If you don't, just click on the button, ask a question, and type into the text box, add your name and your city, and be sure and hit submit, okay, because I won't see it unless or until you uh, click on that button. And uh, hopefully we can get a little bit of conversation going around this fascinating idea of honoring at once the interactive relationship, the dependence, the interdependence of thoughts and feelings and behavior, yet at the same time recognizing that emotions are a second form of intelligence dedicated to knowing the self. We err when we project our feelings onto those that made us feel, fixate and obsess on why would they make me feel this way. Completely irrelevant question. The feelings are about you. And then use the thoughts to know the world around you. Don't think about yourself. Don't project your feelings onto others. Own them. That's what they're about. Subjective intelligence, emotions. And don't use your thoughts to know yourself because you just beat yourself up and be self-critical. Your thoughts are objective for knowing the world around you. Someday school will educate you, as it does now, in thoughts and rational thinking to know the world and in emotional intelligence to know yourself. We just haven't evolved to that point. We've got a lot of problems in schools. And this one is still way out on the horizon. Most teachers, even good teachers, some really good teachers out there, would love to teach emotional intelligence. They're just not sure how to get it on the curriculum, how to get it, you know, how to, how to make that breakthrough because it is so personal. And if you're going to have 30, 35, 40 kids in a the classroom, there's not a lot of opportunity for teaching each to be a unique individual, right? You can see the problem there. It's much easier to teach logic and rational thinking, which everybody does the same way. Just don't apply it to the self. And don't apply your feelings to other people. Keep those sorted out. And that will help you to understand that happiness is a baseline condition. That's how you're supposed to feel. Happy, healthy, fulfilled, somewhat inspired, okay, feeling good for no particular reason whatsoever. Just like your negative feelings, the hurt and upset might seem like it's always hooked to some sort of reason. Like there's a reason why she made me angry. There's a reason why he made me jealous. But if you look more deeply, those negative feelings, the anger, the jealousy, whatever, go way beyond the trigger the, the reason why you feel that way usually turns out just to be a triggering agent 
those feelings go deep and they're much more about you than anybody who may have triggered them. All right, that's the difficult lesson that, or the lesson that most people have difficulty with here is accepting responsibility for the for our emotional feelings without, without again bringing in the mental nature to judge it, right? As, uh, well, I should feel this way or I shouldn't feel that way. Uh, I mean, part of this is your thoughts can be wrong, you know that. The thoughts about the world around you can be right or wrong. Everybody's taking a test that they got less than 100%. Well, gee, I thought this was right, but I guess it was wrong. It turned out I got it wrong. I sure didn't think it was right. Has it ever occurred to you that your emotional nature is so personal, so intimate to you, so much a part of your nature from moment to moment, that you cannot have a wrong feeling? It's impossible to have a wrong feeling. You might misinterpret the feeling when you go to think about the feeling, but if you just fit, sit intuitively and feel the feeling until it reveals itself to you intuitively and it dawns upon you, not through logic, but through intuition. That's the intelligence of the emotions. A, a gradual, oh, wait, sometimes not so gradual, sometimes a burst of enlightenment, but often a gradual coming of the dawn. Oh, wait a minute. I'm starting to understand now, not logically, but intuitively, what this says about me. When you stop blaming yourself, um, this this idea that somebody could say to you, for example, oh, don't feel that way. Oh, oh, I'm sorry to see you sad. Don't feel that way. Like you could throw a switch. Uh, you shouldn't feel that way. What? What kind, of, what kind of ridiculous statement to say to somebody they shouldn't feel that way, that, that, that the feeling they're having now physical or emotional, as a symptom of their condition is bad or wrong, they shouldn't feel it. Like driving down the street and a gauge idiot light comes on in the dashboard or a gauge indicates a problem and you go, oh, you shouldn't be low on gasoline. Oh, your water temperature shouldn't be that high. <laughs> so let's just ignore it and keep driving on, right? Well, I'm sorry about our ego's tendency to want to judge everything, even feelings, as right or wrong. Accept the truth of the feeling, and you accept the truth of yourself. And then, whether the feeling is positive or negative, love-based or fear-based, you have an opportunity to be happy. Because if it's love-based, it's like reflecting what you already know, if it's fear-based, it's reflecting something you don't know and giving you an opportunity to know it and understand it, which changes it from fear to love. I mean, ignorance to understanding is fear to love, right? It's a bad feeling to a positive feeling. Aha! <laughs> That's all the bad feeling, the lack of happiness, is about in the first place. It's just like 
uh, uh, a little alarm goes off, a little red flag, a little warning light on your dashboard. And you say, wait a minute, I'm not happy. I'm sad. I'm depressed. I'm lonely. I'm, I'm alienated. I don't know what I feel. I'm just confused, even. Confusion is a feeling. And I don't know what to make of it with my mind. I guess I better get in there with my thoughts and slice it and, and dice it and shred it up into little tiny, teeny pieces. And then I get little pieces of my feelings and then maybe I'll understand them. But of course, that doesn't work. Right? What works in understanding yourself with your emotional feelings, positive and negative, is intuition, not logic. Sit with the feeling. That's all I can tell you to do. Stop judging it. Stop the storytelling. And just feel it. Give, give your emotion a color. Give it a texture or a temperature. Imagine reaching out to touch the feeling. Hold it in your hand. Sense the feeling with your imagination until this dawning. You know how it feels to gradually understand something. This light comes out. It's like, Whoa, hold on here. Some where you talk about the dawning, the the light bulb, and being thunderstruck. Sometimes you just, you know, the whole top of your head explodes with. There's so much light and such an epiphany, an aha, uh, an illumination, eureka illumination. The light comes on. Or it could just be the light bulb popping on like Ford has a better idea. Remember that old archetype, that commercial? And then the gradual dawning we've been talking about. This is not a logical process. Save that for your mentality. Happiness for no reason. Happiness is a feeling, a quality of love, a natural, normal condition. It's internal. It's personal. It's a nominal state. It's where you should be most of the time. And there's no reasoning to it. It's a feeling that you feel. And everything that is negative in our emotional nature can be transmuted or transformed, redeemed for the religious folks in the crowd, or saved through understanding. You understand a negative feeling, it becomes a positive feeling. It doesn't hurt anymore. It goes away. It was only there as a symptom, again, like that idiot light on the dashboard, to get your attention, to say, hey, pull over. Take care of this. Find out what's going on. Imagine happiness for no reason. Pretty cool, huh? All right, so um, let's go to the questions and time check. I have four minutes after the hour, and I see we have some callers. Good, good, good. Let me check the Q&A on the web. And... Pretty sure we got time to get to everybody here today. First of all, in Canoga Park, Phil is with us, and uh, 
he was just saying hi, and um, he wants to come to the Thursday night video conference. Phil's done that in the past. He said he he got distracted and forgot to join us. It's not a good time for him. Yeah, you know, every time I set for the video conference or for this Sunday webinar is a great time for some people and inconvenient for others. So that's why we have multiple events every week. And uh, it reminds me to invite you as a Mystery School listener to join us for the Thursday night video conference which is smaller in nature, will have 8, 10, 12 people. And sort of a free-for-all, really. I'm, I'm trying to make it as, and keep it as open a discussion as possible without me being dominating or being too much of a teacher as I am here, trying to, like in a group situation, allow everyone to learn from everyone and not just me. Plus, having the added element of the webcam and the microphone is pretty cool. So if you can make it, um, uh, the details are in the newsletter. You should be getting every Friday. And um, if you're not, go to theagelesswisdom.com and click on free newsletter. Leave me at least your first name and your email address, and we'll make sure you start getting the newsletter. And if you want to come to the Thursday night video conference, Visit Zorap.com. That's Z like zebra, O R A P like Paul. Zorap.com. You just register once and download a little uh, browser plugin. Use the browser that you your favorite browser, whatever it's Internet Explorer or Firefox or Safari or Chrome or whatever. Go to Zorap.com with that browser, download the plugin, and then uh, Thursday night at um, 7.30 Pacific, uh, 10.30 Eastern, go to Zorap.com slash mbenner, and you'll be in the event. Wear headphones if you can, otherwise keep the volume down to avoid feedback, but if you have a microphone and a webcam, it's pretty cool. Uh, I really enjoy it. In Salinas, California, Paul says, how can happiness dispel irrational fears of the future? I'm not sure that happiness can dispel irrational fears of the future. Um, I think it's understanding irrational fears of the future that allows happiness to return as a normal state or normal condition. If you want to argue that happiness is a state of accelerated understanding or by bringing happiness to bear for no reason, maybe just by you stop the judging and, um, and accept. That's a word I haven't used today is acceptance. It's a scary word for most people because acceptance sounds like giving up or giving in. And acceptance in wisdom traditions is just get real about the situation and begin here. It's not giving up or giving in. (laughs) 
It's begin here, start here, get real, accept the truth of the situation, and then begin here, like the um, the serenity prayer. You know, it's popular in the 12-step program. Lord, grant me the serenity to accept what I cannot change. There's acceptance. To accept what I cannot change. The courage to change what I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Well, the wisdom to know the difference includes I cannot change the past, but I can change the future in the now. Right? I cannot change the past, um, and I cannot change what's been done to me. There's another way of saying the same thing, but I can choose what I do with it. You see, most people struggle against the stimulus rather than accept that they're not going to win the struggle. You're not going to control the weather, so just bring a sweater and a raincoat. <laughs> right? You control your response instead of trying. That's one of the big secrets of control. People try to control the wrong thing. They want to control what's happening to them rather than what they do with it. The matador is a great example. Even a matador does not take the bull by the horns. Only a very, very stupid matador would attempt to control a uh, 4,000-pound bull charging at you. They step out of the way at the last minute. you know. Or the sailor that says, one of my favorites, the sailor will say, I cannot control the wind, but I can trim my sails. So, this may be largely semantic, but it's not so much the happiness dispels irrational fear, Paul. I think that a process of dispelling irrational fear by facing your fear, doing it in a quiet meditative state, sitting with fear, and again, all negative hurt is fear-based. It could be your fear of being angry, your fear of being lonely, your fear of being out of work, your fear of not having any money, it doesn't matter. It's always something you don't really know that you fear. It's not a clear and present danger, it's things unknown. As you sit with it, face it, even embrace it. Face your fear. Breathe into it. Sit open and receptive. Teach me, you say to your fear and to your heartache. And the understanding will dispel the fear. And as the clouds part, you'll see, oh, the sun was there all along. It was just hidden by the clouds. The sun's there all along. And so happiness returns because it never really went away. Like St. John of the Cross's Dark Night of the Soul, which was reprised by uh, Andrew Harvey a few years ago. He wrote a book called The Sun at Midnight, this feeling that we've been abandoned by God or abandoned by justice and fairness in life. It's like the sun at midnight. It's dark out. And you say, where is the sun? It's gone. It left. It abandoned me. No, it didn't. It's just in that leg of the cycle. It'll be around. Everything is cyclic in the physical world. All things pass. Everything is impermanent. Right? It'll be back. <laughs> it comes the dawn. Here it comes. Uh, 
the happiness never goes away. It just gets covered up sometimes. That, and I, maybe that's a little nitpicky, Paul, but that's my best uh, response, and it's a great question. Thank you for that. Uh, in the uh, Habra, Carol Postel is with us. She says, hello, Michael and Doreen. Hi, Carol. We miss you. Nice to hear from you. Uh, Patricia Vega in Los Angeles. Aloha, Michael. And aloha, Doreen. She says, I think that peace of mind and contentment developed through meditation can be felt daily, but happiness comes in spurts. Uh, just a thought. Okay. Obviously, that's your experience of it. So, um, I, I I I would not even take issue with that. I, I would just point out again to the the idea of the sun at midnight, or the cyclic nature of all things. It's not that your happiness goes away ever. The sun doesn't really go away at night, and it doesn't go away on a cloudy day. It's still there. So. Your happiness, your love, cannot be lost if happiness is indeed a quality of love. For love is not just a state or a condition. Love is the essence of who you are. Love is what you are. But it's very difficult for the brain to comprehend that. I was going to say for the brain to get its arms around that, that I am, you know, we spend our whole life trying to be loved and loving and lovable. The idea that I am love, I am an incarnation of love. I am the embodiment of divine love in a very unique package. I'm not only loved, loving and lovable. I am that love that I've been looking for. Oh my God, I've been looking all my life for love without realizing till now that love is who I am. It's love that's doing the looking. This is a, this universe is a universe of mirrors. And these kinds of paradoxes and contradictions around this being a reflection of that uh, is very, very profound. Buddhism is full of the idea that this has to be in order for that to exist. It's almost like, how do you create something out of nothing? How do I get uh, a number five out of zero? The only way I can do it is to create a negative five to go along with it. And you say, but the negative five is very different from the five. In fact, the negative five is in opposition to the five. In fact, the positive five is a good five. The negative five, I'm thinking that's a bad five. <laughs> you see what happens? We divide the world into opposites and see them as being in opposition and opposing when each is necessary uh, to the other. Does evil have to exist in order for good to exist? Yes. 
If only good existed, there'd be no good. It has to be, in a relative sense, there has, it has to be a choice available to you. You see, it gets very deep. And, and again, I don't want to get off the track. We'll do another show on that. Okay, but that's why everything cycles. You understand that all material things are really energy. Spirit is another word for energy. Spirit and energy vibrate. It oscillates. It has an upside and a downside. The frequency is how fast it reverses itself, <laughs> right? And so there's many, many frequencies. But the yin and the yang of it, the polarities, the peaks and the valleys, the good stuff and the bad stuff, so-called, uh, is necessary or essential. So uh, this is the kind of stuff that I really love about esoteric philosophy, and, and uh, I hope you hang in with this stuff. So let's see. Did I answer uh, Patricia? Did I respond to her comment? Does it come in spurts? Yeah, everything comes in waves and spurts. Grief is a great example. You say happiness comes in spurts. Look at grief, Right? How much grief can you handle? Well, that's how much you get, and then it goes away. And you think, oh, I'm, thank goodness I'm over that. And then, bam, you get it, hit with another wave of grief, just when you thought you were over it. Well, you could say love and happiness comes in spurts, because how much love can you handle? How much happiness can you handle at a time? You know, people are always waiting for the other shoe to drop. Like, too much happiness was scary, so <laughs> sometimes we sabotage ourselves because I don't know if I can handle all this love, all this happiness. I, I, I need some variety. <laughs> I need some yin and yang in here. And uh, and so we create it. So everything comes in spurts. That's part of the cyclic nature. We certainly agree on that. Thanks, Patricia. And the Tucson Lorelei says, Aloha, Michael, great topic in many ways. Peace and love to you and Doreen. And Brea, Dave Murray, hi, Michael, good to hear you. My question is, if emotional pain is keeping you from being happy, then what's the best way of dealing with that? Best to you and Doreen. And uh, uh, signed Dave and Jackie, too. Uh, the Murdys and Brea. Thank you, Dave. Uh, the best way... Make sure I answer, uh, respond to you directly. If emotional pain is keeping you from being happy. What's the best way of dealing with that? Okay, so if it's nighttime and there's no sun, or if the sky is cloudy, and uh, you know the sun is there, uh, how do we get rid of the clouds? How do we deal with the uh, negative feeling to get back to the happiness? You understand it. You face it. Our tendency, by and large, is to push away to turn away, to deny or ignore anything that hurts us. Remember, all negative emotions, all the ones that hurt and upset us, uh, we just soon not know about. So, like danger, we fight and we run away. Well, again, if it were real danger, fine, fight or flight. But when it's something that needs understanding, we have to face the fear, move toward the fear, breathe into the fear, even embrace the fear, which exists 
only as ignorance, and how else to resolve ignorance but through understanding, by facing what we do not know. Only then can it become known. And then there is no more fear. And then the happiness returns. Because you see, it was all a nightmare to begin with. Fear is always a nightmare. Happiness is always the truth. In Irvine, uh, Robert says, Aloha, Michael. I spend so much time misjudging people's intentions and actions. It really helps understanding where these feelings are coming from. Really sets us free. Thanks a lot. Yeah, give it up, man. Give it up. Uh, (laughs) Why do we obsess around other people's intentions and actions because we think that we are an effect of their lives. Uh, We're not. We are the effect of our lives. We are the cause of our lives. We are the cause and the effect. We cause the effect. It's our response to the other people that constitutes your reality. It's your perception that is real. There's nothing objective about it. Everybody's reality is very personal. (laughs) You know, it's like 10 people watching the sun go down. They could be sitting side by side on the beach chatting about the sunset as they're watching it go down. And you must understand that each is watching a different sunset. And a variety of memories, unique memories are being recalled by these people and what they know about the sun and the earth and the way they think about the world is that sun sets and what that brings up in them emotionally the idea that we're living in a shared reality that should be the difficult argument that perception is reality ought to be clear to us so there's not much value in guessing other people's intentions or actions if you're really that interested ask them They probably don't know anyway, but if you really want to know, ask. Focus instead on your intentions and your actions, your motive and your identity. Much more fascinating. It's a little more risky, (laughs) but it's uh, much more fascinating. Let me hit the refresh button. Let's see if we have a few others here. Um, Paul came back from Salinas. Paul says, so... Uh, How can I begin to teach emotional intelligence to my students, fifth grade, even if not in a formal manner, but in an informal manner? Should I focus on establishing a genuine rapport with each student? Yeah, to the extent you can. Yeah, of course. Um, I don't know how many students you have, but uh, rapport, genuine rapport with each student, Paul, I'm sure you have that. It just means you care about them. Uh, anybody that's teaching the fifth grade in this day and age is not doing it to get rich. Uh, I have a lot of respect for teachers. I come from a family of teachers. It's a noble profession. So I know that you care about them. Uh, To create genuine rapport is to let them know that. Okay, so you're in sync. But that also makes it easier for you to express your, your authority. I think that uh, there are 
a number of things that you can do as part of your lesson plan um, in, well, use the word rapport. Empathy comes up, for example. Uh, if somebody misbehaves, um, you can have empathy exercises. Or if two people are in conflict, uh, empathy exercises that you could do. Or children gradually learn that emotions come from them not done to them. Use the simple parallel of physical pain. You know, if, uh, if somebody hits another child, say one child hits another child, the first child may have caused the pain in the second child, but the pain experienced by the second child is their pain. And it's a symptom you could point out to the kids of their condition and really doesn't say anything about the first child except that they were rude. They hit them. But, but the real message and the discomfort is um, within you. These are difficult lessons to teach to adults, uh, much less to kids. So I would go in very tiny little pieces and just instill responsibility for feelings. I think that's the key word. Uh, and even define it in a playful way. The ability to choose a response is responsibility. It's not self-blame. Okay? It's, I have choice. I can choose the way I respond to the feeling. I can choose to ignore the feeling when it comes up and blame other people, or I could choose instead to respond by reflecting upon the feeling and seeing what it tells me about me, what I could learn about myself. I'm sure there's literature available. I'm not a school teacher, but, I mean, not a public school teacher, but I'd be surprised if at this point, Paul, there wasn't some information available on emotional intelligence for children, teaching emotional intelligence to kids. Let me know if you find something. Albert Garcia in Rosemead says, Hi, uh, just want to say that I keep waking up those minds that are sleepwalking. Oh, he's saying that to me. Keep waking up the sleepwalkers. Uh, I have a Buddhist koan for you. If the many go back to one, where does the one go back to? I don't think the one does go back. <laughs> But if it's a real Buddhist koan, I'm going to give it some thought. I won't be such a fool as to blurt out my final answer. I think if I was pressed, though, uh, the one always moves forward. The one is always progressive. But uh, that's almost a, a trick question, not a koan. So let me presume it is a koan, and I'll get back to you on that. And Los Angeles, Virginia says, good show. Thanks. Would you please include in future newsletters the telephone number to call for the conference? I almost missed today's show because I was away from the computer and could not find the number. Um, yeah, I could do that, I guess. It's just there's so many numbers. We do have one primary number, but um, let me think that through, Virginia. It's a legitimate question. I'll uh, I'll see if I can modify the newsletter that way. Maybe I could put a link. You know what I could do is put a link to the page that has all the phone numbers all over the U.S. 
is again, some people, gosh, if you're still paying by the minute for long distance, it's crazy. You should call your phone company and get a flat rate plan. They're, they're, they're not going to tell you that you can save a lot of money with a flat rate plan. Um, but shop around. And if you are still paying by the minute, then use that link. It's right on the web page in front of you, right above the player. It gives the phone number, and then it'll say local numbers. Click on that, and there's a page with 20, 30 numbers all over the United States. Find a number close to you, an area code near you, and it'll be a free call for you. All right, let's uh, see. Do I have time for... Yeah, I think we can get some calls in. Let's see if we have anybody online who would like to speak. I have Robert in West L.A. and Robert, welcome to the Mystery School with Michael Benner. Hello, Michael. How are you doing this afternoon? I'm doing better and better, thanks. How's about you? Uh, pretty good. Glad you're back. Uh, hope you enjoyed your trip to the mainland. Thank you. I did. I did. Outstanding. Hey, do we have a couple of seconds? Yeah. We can blurt something out about happiness. Sure. You mentioned Buddhism, and uh, Tibetan Buddhism uh, has shed a lot of light on this, uh, all experientially based. The happiness is the natural state and natural condition of mind. Mind as distinguished from activity of mind. There's mind, which is a vast space in which thoughts, feelings, emotions, and everything else are experienced. And then there's the activity of mind, which is just that, the content, what is experienced, including the gaggle of thoughts and what we call roof brain chatter. Right. Well, we can to answer a couple of questions here, particularly I think it was the gentleman asked, how, how, can we, how can we use happiness to rid ourselves of irrational fear of the future? Right. Well, if you are paying attention to whatever you are doing in the moment and nothing else, you will be happy. Uh, the Buddha gave us an excellent directive. He said that the mind dispersed is miserable. Mind concentrated is bliss. And this is a key. If you're focused on what you're doing in the moment, then the ego, which among other things, the things you cited, also loves reflection. The ego cannot operate on an experience in the moment. It can only reflect upon it. So where there is ego, there is no happiness, and where there is happiness, there is no ego. There is no ego, yeah. If you're totally focused on the moment, then there can be no thought of the future. There are no thoughts of the past. There's only the moment. And when you're in the moment totally, and I'm not saying it comes by flipping a switch, it, we have to develop an attention span over a lifetime. But it's worth the effort because the reward is happiness. Now, the only say caveat would be that it's not something we can reflect upon. As soon as we start to try and reflect upon our state of happiness, real happiness is gone. And as you've alluded throughout the entire program, real happiness is not a heightened mood. 
It's not an emotion that comes and goes. Real happiness is, in fact, an underlying current. And the blips and spurts are just an illusion, as is the sunlight passing through clouds on a rainy day. Your sun metaphor is a good one. The sun is always up there. Even at night, the fact that it looks dark is just an illusion. But if we can, we've heard it again and again and again. If we can work to stay present and concentrated fully on whatever we're doing in the moment, from moment to moment to moment, then happiness is our natural condition. Yeah, a lot of things come up hearing you uh, speak. Um, We can define happiness, I think, in many ways. One of them would be the freedom from fear. And uh, that's what love is, the, uh, again, capital love, the love on the, the spiritual plane or plane of the soul. But we have a small L love that we settle for, which is the love of the ego, that the emotional love that the ego experiences, like a prideful love. Um, look at my um, trophy girlfriend over here. Isn't she hot? I think... In the same way, while we've been talking about capital H happiness, um, it could be argued by some, and I think most do, that the ego could or should be able to create a small H happiness. Uh, And that's what people confuse as there ought to be a reason, there needs to be a reason for me to be happy. But if there was a reason to be happy, it would be a small H happiness of the ego, and I promise you it wouldn't last long. (laughs) No, it doesn't, and it's sporadic in that it is the product of primarily changes in our biochemistry. Hey, anybody listening now that's had a really good piece of chocolate knows that ego-based happiness, which is related to biochemistry, is something that, that can be had Instantly, it's fleeting. Yes, a but moment it, upon the tongue. And that's right, it. and it. But you're right. It doesn't. Lie. It is fleeting. It, it that is the spurts, and that's what tends to cause a lot of sadness in the end. Because as soon as it's gone, it's well, where did it go? And so it is that the great saints and masters and prophets and yogis and everybody else who's tapped into this has gone blue in the face for several millennia now, trying to get us to instead focus on something like, and even though it's what we're going to do in each moment is changing, the reality of being concentrated with our presence, of being present to whatever we're doing, is not. Our presence doesn't change. It's always there. And the more that we can bring of that to anything we do, the the better the state, the closer we're going to be to always being in the natural state of mind, the natural condition of mind, which is a bliss. I'm glad you brought that up. That was a, a part of this. Um, I'm sure there's others, too, that I did not speak to, but the idea of paying attention bringing us into the 
the instant into the moment um, is an important one because as as we allow our attention to shift to be attracted or distracted into the past and the future um, that's where we spend most of our lives and that's where we experience the fear and the confusion of things not real why we're able to say all fear is a nightmare um, and it's never real it's just a bad dream love on the other hand and happiness the quality that you're talking about is the only thing that's real not only is it real it's the only reality there is um, the natural condition of being yes it's consciousness love is consciousness and happiness is a quality of love but not a condition of the ego state. It's, it, it really needs, if it's going to be permanent and not impermanent, uh, it, it's, it's got to be a matter of spirit and not a matter of ego. And to work that dichotomy, again, to know that that we are in form, but we're also above and free of form now. And you don't have to wait till you die to access the soul. It's standing above us now, again, just like the sun at midnight or the sun in a thunderstorm uh, the, the oversoul is above us now, it's radiating nothing but consciousness is love, truth, happiness, wisdom uh, peace of mind joy, everything that we're looking for, oddly, ironically is what we are, if we would but allow it, that's the cosmic joke in all of this we've already got, in fact we are everything we're looking for, if we would but allow it and honor it Absolutely. We've uh, we've all been conditioned to be seekers. We've been set into and conditioned into a state of disequilibrium almost from the get-go because, let's face it, uh, every being born arrives into an established condition. There are beings that have been here and have an investment in things not changing. Every being that comes is a potential change. And unfortunately, the way of the world for a long time has been to uh, set us against ourselves so that we're more easily managed by people with things to lose. Yeah, divide and conquer. Yeah. Hey, Robert, thank you. How about a parting shot or final comment? Uh, hey, um, uh, if all else fails, remember your breath. Yes, breathe. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for the call, Robert. Aloha. Aloha. And Robert's in West L.A. Okay, um, let's go to our meditation exercise, our guided meditation exercise. We're a little short on time today, but we can uh, do something together. So I'd like you to get comfortable. And whether you're sitting back, like in a chair that supports you, or sitting on a pillow or a cushion, I'd like you to be direct but not rigid, rather balanced and centered. Imagine a line running right straight through the center of your being, parallel to the spine. As you become even more relaxed, take a nice, slow, deep breath, filling your lungs with strength and power, inhaling ideally through the nose, 
hold for just a moment as you peek, and as you exhale, feel the letting go in your body. And exhale beyond where you'd normally stop all the way out. Now that may be too slow for most of you, but four breaths a minute is a good goal. Most of you are probably at six or eight, but the more you relax, the easier it is to slow your breathing even further. And so that's a nice little biofeedback technique to gauge the extent to which you're allowing yourself to feel even safer and and more relaxed, and you can feel muscles unwinding. Imagine yourself like butter on a warm day, slowly softening toward the interior, toward the core of your being. Feel the letting go. And place your attention for a moment on the bottom of your nose, the tip of your nose or the cartilage between your nostrils, and simply watch your body breathing for a moment or two. As if nothing else were more important. And as thoughts and feelings compete for your attention, release those distractions. Gently, placing your attention back on the bottom of your nose. Just like training a puppy dog, you just repeat consistently, gently and with affection. Training the mind to rest gently upon the moment by watching your breathing I'd like you to raise your awareness now from the bottom of your nose to a point in front of your forehead the Ajna Center the sixth chakra sometimes known as the third eye and tune the instrument. In other words, gently move your awareness. Intuitively move your awareness up and down, left and right, forward and back until you find what feels like the most comfortable spot for your attention to rest. It might be right in the middle of the forehead, might be closer to the brows in the middle left and right, but a little lower. Not between the eyebrows exactly, but a little higher than that. Maybe on the plane of the forehead, maybe a little in front of the forehead. Tune around. Trust your intuition and feel your awareness settling into the ajna. And know this to be a point of integration 
or your mental, emotional, and physical nature. The point of integration for the persona, the personality, or the ego self, its thoughts, its emotions, and its behavior. And as you allow your awareness to rest gently before the brows, I'd like you to think of the order of creating form and refining form in the world. That we begin with a thought, a seed, a seed thought. And while there may be some back and forth between a feeling that that thought kicks up and the way the thought might be modified by it, as you continue to relax, those disturbances themselves fall away. The thought becomes even more clear and more specific. In this case, I'd like you to think of happiness. Not as something you create through reasoning or rational, logical thinking, but as overshadowing like the sun we've discussed, whether at midnight or hidden by dark stormy clouds. Consider happiness as the star at the center of our solar system that's always there, perpetually, eternally, burning brightly. A star for no reason, a source of all things physical, energy, physical energy, physical matter, all coming from the stars. Imagine our star, the sun, as happiness for no reason. And it seems to come in spurts and fits and waves of happiness, as if when it's not available, we could reason our way back to happiness, but instead gently form the thought that happiness is capitalized and stands above the emotion of happiness as a spiritual energy or quality of divine love, like joy or peace of mind or truth or wisdom, a capital H happiness, above and free of form. Imagine that thought dropping into the solar plexus, into the heart area. And stimulating a feeling of happiness. A second type of happiness, a egoic happiness, happiness of the separated persona self. In this case, a soul-infused persona. And no 
this small H happiness that you begin to feel as a feeling impacted by capital H happiness, the thought seed, the soul above and free of form, infinite and eternal on its own plane. And so happiness is a thought, an ideation, impacts the emotional happiness and manifests as a state of being, a state of focused attention right here, right now. Like the stories of Buddha and Christ and other masters, unaffected by the madness around them. Like the example I've given on several occasions of the grandfather clock over in the corner with a pendulum that swings evenly and perpetually tick-tock, tick-tock. On the most beautiful day, but even as a storm comes up on the horizon, the wind begins to blow. The shutters rattle. The door slams shut. The windows shake and vibrate. You hear thunder. See lightning and the rain pounds down upon the roof of the house. Mortal beings would be scared and run, perhaps, and hide. The animals as well. But the grandfather clock is unaffected. It's happy for no reason. It somehow seems above it all. It just continues. Tick, tock. Tick, tock. Happiness capitalized as divine love is capitalized as love truth as consciousness itself yes projected into form but primarily existing above and free of form and therefore permanent eternal infinite everlasting happiness contentment to be awake is to be happy for no reason to be free from fear is to be happy for no reason to know yourself not only is loved and loving and lovable but as the embodiment of love is happiness for no reason. And the great thing about happiness as love, as truth, as consciousness, is that you need not carry it with you, for it's everywhere equally present, like the ocean. 
And so you continue to let go as you reorient yourself toward the sound of my voice. And as you prepare in a moment to open your eyes wide awake and alert, you remind yourself that you don't have to hold on to love or happiness. You don't need to bring it with you. It's with you now. It'll be with you in the future. There's no reason whatsoever to be concerned with happiness. It's as available as the air, as the ocean, everywhere equally present, everywhere you go, your happiness is available to you. So let go. If you try to hold on to happiness, if you try to grab it, attach to it, clench it or carry it, it will immediately become a fear of losing happiness. Instead, let go. And know that it's always available to you. It is you. It's what you've been looking for your whole life. Happiness, love, peace of mind. And it turns out that it's who you are and who you have been all along available to you whenever you but allow yourself to experience and acknowledge that capital T truth. With this in mind, feeling the letting go, breathe, big, slow, deep breath, fill your lungs, hold as you peak, and now, slowly, exhaling, open your eyes, wide awake, alert, rested, refreshed, happy, (laughs) for no reason, back in the room, feeling fine, wide awake, better than before, feeling fine, back in the room, and happy for no reason, how about that? I hope you've enjoyed today. I certainly have. Um, Every time I do one of these, I say, i got to get it down below two hours. i got to get it down to an hour and a half. I sure wish I could do this in an hour, and I never can. So uh, the fact that uh, so many of you stay with me for so long live is amazing to me. Um, I'll try to be more concise in the future, but nobody's ever complained. It's just my feeling that shorter is better. But thank you, and again, remember the podcast if you ever miss this. Listen on demand with your portable MP3 player, your iPod, your iPad, your iPhone, or any MP3 player. And visit FocusPassion.com. Subscribe to our premium audio. If you like this, you'll love that. It's only $0.99 when you subscribe for a year. I'm sorry, when you subscribe per month um, at $3.00. Uh, 96 cents per month Uh, that's 99 cents a week even less on those months that have five Wednesdays in them there's four of those every year so it's less actually than a buck a week Uh, sign up you get uh, even a free account if you just leave an email in your name you get six programs free and then if you uh, add the charge of 99 cents a week billed monthly at 396 then you'll begin to get the whole feed in the built-in player and available to your portable players as well. So thanks for being with us, and as always, be gentle, love life, and 
take care of each other. This is Michael Benner. Aloha from Mali. <laughs>